Now is the chance to use reliable energy to grow your money with the Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. Our new investment product offers competitive returns, no maintenance fees, and flexible online access to your money. Make the reliable investment in reliable energy. The Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. To find out more, go online to reliabilityinvestment.com. That's reliabilityinvestment.com. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I am Joe Devine and I was delighted to be joined for today's episode by Seb Stafford-Bloor and also Adam Crafton from The Athletic. Now, Adam Crafton, he used to be the Daily Mail. He is now at The Athletic and some of his pieces um, in the early months of the season have been fantastic. Uh, we talked about a few of them today. The first one was um, about Emiliano Sala, the non-player who very sadly died in an air crash um, on the way back to Cardiff. And of course, at the moment, you may have seen in the news that there is a bit of a dispute between the two clubs as to whether or not Cardiff are uh, legally obliged to pay the first instalment of uh, the transfer fee that was promised to Nantes as a result of some fairly technical issues, which we will get into. Um, Adam explains the situation behind it, the story up to date for anyone who hasn't got on board. I'm so sorry, the air conditioning has just come on. Uh, hopefully you can't hear that. Um, Adam will explain the story, you know, for anyone who didn't read about it originally or hasn't kept up to date on it. Um, needless to say, it's a, it's a very sad story. Um, it's, it's, you know, at times not particularly pleasant to talk about, but Adam did spend some time with um, Salah's friends and he met the family. He went to his hometown in Argentina. Um, that piece is... Um, is again quite emotive to read but really gives the situation some color and um um yeah is is sad uh, albeit interesting i suppose as things uh, of that nature tend to be we also talk about uh, a piece he wrote um a sort of behind the scenes on the transfer market i've got it here you might be able to see it on my phone possibly if the camera decides to focus there uh, agents buying beds for clients players demanding set piece bonuses and payment of divorce bills what really happens in the transfer window that's really interesting we talk about that towards the end as well there's a lot of anecdotes to discuss the piece is also worth reading um, and in the middle we talk about a few other things including the what was at the time the deteriorating relationship between Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and Romelu Lukaku um, Adam was a, a great guest. I hope you will agree. And, um, oh, I'm supposed to say, of course, that we are supported by <laughs> The Athletic. Sorry, I forgot about that. Um, we are supported by The Athletic, of course. Um, Adam, of course, writes for The Athletic. And I think, you know, if you just, there's no better way of um, hearing about the sorts of pieces that are available to read than listening to Adam talk. He really is a fantastic writer and is uh, totally worth reading his work. Um, but if you want to do that, you can go to theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO, uh, get a 30-day free trial and 50% off an annual subscription. Uh, so without further ado, thank you very much for downloading this episode. I hope you enjoy it and uh, I'll be back uh, next week with someone else. Thank you. Adam, can you, to get us all on the same page, can you retell, I suppose, the story of Emiliano Salo and what happened to him? Yeah, so, I mean, to strip it down, he looked as though he was signing for Cardiff in January from Nantes. Um, by all accounts, you know, if you look at Cardiff's social media profile at the time, they had celebrated the fact that he had seemed to have become a Cardiff player. He then returned home to Nantes uh, in France, uh, to say farewell to his teammates. And then he boarded a private plane, um, which was organised externally from Cardiff, uh, perhaps by intermediaries involved in the deal, which is what um, the intermediary involved has said um, afterwards and admitted to that. Um, and then the plane went down over the English Channel and several weeks search eventually found his body. Yeah. Um, so a player that Cardiff thought they'd signed or thought they were going to sign £15 million, pounds, uh, unfortunately passed away. Um, and it's now led us to this moment where we have this in very intense legal wrangling between Cardiff and Nantes. I'd like to come back to that um, in a little while. And first I wanted to talk about, 
You wrote a, a piece for mm. The Athletic about this, which I, was very well written, by, by the way. Not that I'm to judge, but I enjoyed reading it, mm. I should say. Um, and you visited, uh, you visited his friends and his family and you spoke to people who knew him. And, you know, through reading the piece, you get a real colour for, obviously, how... Mm emotional situation it is for all the people that knew him but you also get a colour for his his life and his friends can you tell us a little bit about that experience and meeting his family and friends yeah I mean it's a tiny tiny rural uh, village in in Argentina um, he's the first player to ever come out of there and really go on to do anything in Europe and and therefore respect to that community um, he's incredibly special um, and he would go back there uh, quite regularly in the summers. He'd host barbecues. Um, he'd do, you know, all his closest friends are still from um, this town, Progreso, in Argentina. And his friends would go over to see him play. And, you know, I was talking to one of his friends who just said, you know, this is the most amazing thing when you go and watch your, play, your friend play as a striker, scoring goals in a big European league. There's just nothing like that. So in, incredibly intense situation there. Also, doubly sad because his father has also since passed away he had a, a heart attack um three months afterwards um i went to see his uh, um emiliano's step stepmother um who explained just sort of the incredible amount of stress that it placed on her on her husband and that was just you know from from a journalistic point of view it was you know it was it was massively uncomfortable you mm. know i mean she was three months into grieving her husband actually and actually what was interesting she explained that um emiliano's father horacio actually didn't have a fantastic relationship with the son um but because the sort of glo the globe's media um arrived in progresso at the time he felt too embarrassed to say that when people were knocking on his door saying you know what what's going on with your son and is there anything you want to talk about and he actually he essentially made up that he'd spoken to Emiliano two days before. Mm. And I think what he was grieving for in those weeks afterwards, when the body was being searched for was not only the fact his son had died, but also this lost relationship with the son as well. So there was all, there was all these layers of like, of, I suppose quite common family tension that, that so many families have, but just built upon, you know, a tiny community receiving international scrutiny. Mm. Um, and that, you know, that was a horrible, um, massively uncomfortable um, situation for that community to have to go through. But, you know, everyone I spoke to there, probably 10 to 15 people cried at some point in the conversation. Yeah. And, you know, it's still incredibly raw. It's, you know, eight, nine months since their friend, their family member died. Um, and they've not really had any answers yet. Yeah. Adam, from um, from a, a human perspective, when you're approaching a story like that, your your natural instinct is presumably to recall from it and say this is this is not my place. Especially during the beginning of the story, when you had this ridiculous, well, not ridiculous, it's a very callous thing to say. This unique scenario where everyone knew what had happened, but there was no finality to it. How do you um, condition yourself to to move past the feeling that you're kind of intruding on that grief and to do justice to the story? Is that is that difficult? Basically, is, is what I what I'm asking. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm probably a bit strange in that I'm quite, you know I'm quite I don't find it too difficult to to compartmentalize what I consider to be my job and that that human aspect of it. Um, I did, you know, before going out there, I did touch base with his friend, Martin, um, who said, you know, that he was happy to meet me and that he would be able to introduce me to um, a number of other friends that would also be very, more than happy to talk about their friend. You know, I, I went out and I told them, you know, I want to talk to you about your friend. I don't want to talk to you about, you know, necessarily everything that's gone on. Just tell me about your friend. Yeah. Um, and then you can build a story around that and, you know, you're not expecting them to make the horrible calls to Dorset police and, and all that side of it. Um, I think with the family, it was more difficult. Um, you know, I did contact the, um, his brother Dario in the weeks before. And I think, you know, the impression I had is that Dario had so many you know, requests from media from all over those months. He, di he didn't get back. So, you know, I went knew maybe it wouldn't be possible to speak to the family as it turned out. I suppose lucky in the sense that it was a tiny tiny village where you can't help but bump into people yeah. or you know be able to find people um 
and I saw Dario was working, he works in a tool shop and you know, I just said to him, I want to talk to you about your brother. Um, and if you don't want to do that, that's okay. And if you do want to do that, then that's okay. Um, and he was happy to do so. Um, their mother was away babysitting um, for Emiliano's nephew um, that day. But I think she also was probably going through a few days where she just didn't really want to talk to a stranger about it, which mm-hmm. is completely normal and, and you res- and you respect that. Um, so yes, it, yes, it's difficult, but I think, I think if you're going into it with the right intentions, knowing what you hope the piece will be at the end of it, mm. um, without sounding too pompous and important, um, then, then I don't think it's too difficult to yeah. to compartmentalise that. It's an interesting type of story, though, and, and I think, as I said at the beginning, I think you, you did it justice, and personally I feel that it's important that these sorts of things are written in the way that you wrote about it. I know that the story will have been written about in different ways as no, well. But we but had a WhatsApp conversation about this yeah, last we did, night. Yeah. We, did. we talked about the kind of the tone of it and how important that was yeah. to the story. And yeah. do you, what I'm getting at, I suppose, is that does it feel, just from a personal mm. perspective, you, with the caveat that I think it should be done, does it still feel a bit like an imposition contacting people and asking if you can speak to them as a journalist when they're in a, in a difficult moment, do you know? No, because it's our job, yeah. you know, and... However, personally, it may be to those people at that time. Our job, my job, is to is to cover Premier League football. Yeah, and this was a situation where a Premier League footballer had died, and I, c- I can't remember another example off the top of my head of of, of that happening. Um, so it was an extraordinary event mm. um, in itself, and you know and there's also an element of you know this is going to be a case that goes on and on over possibly several years um and also you know these people want were happy to talk about it they wanted yeah. to talk about it um so I, I don't think it's necessarily in position um you know, ultimately all you're doing is saying to someone would you mind if we have a conversation yeah that's all yeah, you know? yeah. and people will either say yes or no i think it becomes an imposition when you keep you know yeah. if i was going back day after day um, and then eventually they let you in. I was very lucky because the um, f- freelance photographer from Argentina lived quite locally um, and he had worked on the story around the time of the death and the funeral. So he actually, he seemed to, kn- I don't think he knew members of the family or friends, but he was a familiar face. And a slightly difficult part of it was that I, I do speak Spanish, but that particular strain of Argentine Spanish is actually quite different to what I to to what I was used to, yeah. Um, you know, to the extent that for these two days I was with the photographer, almost every time he said something, I had to ask him to repeat it. Um, so he was actually really useful as well, just in terms of making sure getting us over the door in certain yeah. in certain situations. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you, if you presumably you were speaking Spanish to the yeah to the yeah. yeah. So, so some of the accents were easier than others, but a couple of them were. You know, pretty, it's the B's and T's, isn't it? I found the, that yeah, they're all it, swapping around. Well, it's that, but it's also the in in South America, the they, they use the sh sound, which yeah. almost sounds Russian Portuguese, yeah. Um, at times, so it throws you a bit, and then you get used to it almost by the time it's too late to get used to it. Mm. How long were you there for? Um, actually, in the town, I think it was two days, um, but it was all it was probably took two days to get there and two days to get back because you fly into Buenos Aires and then there's another flight and then it's a coach journey as well so right had you been to South America before only I've been to Brazil before been to Brazil but not Argentina no so I suppose the you know the natural way for this conversation to move is to talk about what you mentioned at the start the legal battle which is taking place at the moment can you bring us up to to date and it's I don't think anything's going to happen between this being recorded and released but it's worth saying anyway that we're recording this on Thursday the 3rd of October (laughs) Um, but can you bring us up to date on on what's happening and the the nature of the 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 legal battle because it's it's um well Well, it's grubby yeah um to, to be blunt isn't it um it seemed at the time that Cardiff had bought a footballer for £15 million. Um, As you said, he'd been announced on their social so, yeah, media. Yeah, he'd, he'd been announced. I think the hashtag was like, Salah is a bluebird. They'd, you know, they'd shown pictures of him with the kit, um, shaking hands, I think, with the chief executive. Um, so to all intents and purposes, for the common layman football fan journalist, the deal seemed done. Um, however, after the event... I think even actually before the body was found, 
um, news came out that Nantes had asked for the first instalment. Now, we can sit here and say that's te- that's terrible, that's awful, but I suppose from the financial legalistic point of view, there is a deal that's being done and people are owed money and the company is run based on based on these accounts mm. and card and non i suppose would have been looking at signing other players and, and in and, a way and that's kind of un, unrelated with the, you know with the exception obviously it's a horrible situation mm. you would expect that to happen i though. suppose also in that situation maybe not to be too macabre about it but you, probably there wasn't the expectation of finding his body yeah so it was kind yeah. of like you I, I know it's an awful thing to have to talk about but it's probably realistic yeah um so i, I agree on that and i think What's what's since emerged is that Cardiff, despite making that announcement, insists that they had not completed the deal, um, and this is because the initial payment schedule, which was presented to the Premier League, was rejected by the Premier League. Now the Premier League have also backed up this version of events, and apparently, I think the date was January the twenty second when this revised payment schedule uh, with the, with the revised contract had to be signed. Now Salah had never had a chance to sign that final deal, which therefore, in Cardiff's eyes, and potentially in the Premier League's eyes as well, renders the deal null and void. Um, Not believe that that's an unfair representation. So anyway, the case went to FIFA. FIFA have ruled that Cardiff should pay. Cardiff have not accepted that judgment and are now taking it to the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Their, their argument is that the frame the framework of what FIFA can study is more limited um, in terms of the documentation to what CAS can can study. So it's going to go on and Adam, on. just walk us back through that for people that don't understand the difference there. Just expand that in a little bit more detail, if you could. Between FIFA and CAS? Yeah. So it's not entirely clear to me, but the argument that Cardiff are making is that FIFA look study a um a narrower framework mm-hmm. of documentation, whereas CAS will be able to see absolutely everything that's taken place. That's that's the argument that's being made. I don't fully understand why FIFA, you know, having taken several months, wouldn't have studied that as well. Um, but Cardiff, you know, maintain that they are very confident that they will be proven right and in the situation. Mean, do you think that is the likely outcome? Honestly, I don't know. I don't know because I think it's, it's never really happened before like like this has it it'd be a new press a new precedent hopefully a precedent that never needs to happen again but yeah if if cardiff can prove that the doc the final contracts weren't signed then there probably is a case to say that they shouldn't pay the money what you would hope is that cardiff and not actually just get together and reach a settlement yeah because mm. you know this there's a person involved here and they're fighting, you know, they're scrambling over this money. And yes, there was, you know, yes, Nantes have lost a 15 million pound asset and Cardiff have been relegated. So 15 million pounds becomes an even greater figure for them. So I I do get the arguments on both sides, but you were just. The human aspect of it. I remember, um, I remember I went up to Cardiff twice after it happened. um, Once where, when the tribute was still um, gathered around the um, ground, the ground, and then about a month later um, to meet a fan that I was interviewing for a piece. And what was horrible was that the situation that Adam was describing now still raging in the background, mm. this kind of, this very dispassionate legal war, essentially, over what had been reduced to an object. And you had all of these fans walking around kind of City Stadium who, I know they had no real emotional attachment to him, but it was a very strange environment because they were just numbed by it because as we've already said, there is no precedent for this. Maybe, possibly Mark Vivian Faux, but that's a very different situation. And, you know, that's, it, it's just not the same. Um, and so you had this sort of this, this contrast between human grief. Everyone saw the pictures back from Nantes. Um, I saw the, the bits from Cardiff. People saw the, um, the footage from, from Emiliano Sella's hometown. And then in the background, very publicly, and I, that, that's the thing, Adam, it's just, I understand there's a dispute here, but did it have to be, did it have to be framed in this way? Did it have to become such a, a sort of blunt, ugly argument over a, a commodity? It was horrible. It's one of the nastiest episodes I can remember in football, actually. Yeah. I mean, I suppose the flip side is how else can they go about yeah. it in, yeah. in the, you know, if the account that Cardiff are giving, the source that Cardiff are giving at the moment is that Nantes 
have refused several times to come to the table because no one believed that a court, you know, if either FIFA or the courts will eventually prove them right and that they're entitled to money. It's just, it's just pretty horrible to observe. And it, I think it, I think people are looking at the sport, you know, it comes back to that old guy of Southgate quote about, you know, liking the sport that he works in, but hating the business behind it. Um, I've paraphrased it a bit there, but I think that's what, that's what this comes down to. And, and it is, you know, again, without sounding too pompous, it is about the image of the sport, actually. It is about the stereotypes of, of you know, bandit agents and um, bandit agents, clubs that put, you know, the finance before the person. And I think that's what most people looking at it are thinking, even those, a lot of people within those clubs are thinking that. But how else do you resolve it? That that's you know, that's the problem. I think Cardiff are trying to launch some sort of trust um, for Salad, which will help to look after the family, but they've not formalised that. And I think from a legal point of view, they can't really do very much with that at the moment because they can't be seen to be to lean to lean on the family. So I, I do understand why it's difficult for the clubs involved because when it becomes so legal, you also become limited in what you can do from a human aspect. Mm. To go back to, you know, when you were talking about meeting his friends mm. and family, obviously they're devastated by it. One of the things that, you know, sticks out that I remember from reading your piece about it was the feeling that it could have been prevented as well, yeah. that it wasn't, you know, obviously it's not necessary, but like, yeah, it could, have, it could have been avoided. Can you just walk me through that as well with the situation with the plane and the pilot and what, yeah. what actually happened? Yeah. To, to, you know, the extent of our knowledge, obviously. Yeah, um... So from what I can recall, um, it was pretty bad weather that night. Um, but I think the the plane at the time, um, I think they wanted a different pilot. The the intermediaries that organised the plane actually wanted, had a different pilot in mind. He wasn't available. So it ended up being David Botson, who I think was a part-time gas engineer, um, who quite enjoyed flying as well. But he didn't have the relevant um night flight and instrument qualification pilot instrument qualifications and somehow it that happened mm. um and it probably i think the plane from i spoke to a pilot in the piece and and you know he just lists a series of factors which detail why this should never this plane should never have taken off but actually with regards to the weather the plane was capable of rising beyond i think from three and a half thousand feet to twenty five thousand feet um, but he but, didn't have but the he license. Didn't, but he yeah. didn't have the license or perhaps the capability to do that. I think he was also colorblind. Right. I mean, you couldn't really make it up, yeah. the series of, of things involved. What, what I would say is that from speaking to a number of private pilots, it seems like this is quite common. Right. You know, this idea of pretty underqualified people. Um, and there is also this, what you call like, almost like a get home, we have to get home syndrome. Right. Um, so pilots can sometimes feel under pressure to, to fly even when the circumstances, qualifications may not necessarily be right. That doesn't legitimise it. But a lot of people who use private flights tend to be quite rich and powerful. Mm -hmm. And if they're saying to you, I have to be here by X time, then you get them there by X yeah. time. So I think it's a it's an area which needs more regulation generally. Mm. Um, it's, it's, it reminds me a little bit of drink driving in that sense, the kind of we have to get home yeah. if there's no other option. You know, I've only had a few, maybe I'll mm -hmm. just go anyway. It reminds of me of um, John Kennedy Jr.'s death. I know he flew his own plane, but he, he sort of, he crashed into the ocean around Hyannis, I think, Martha's Vineyard. Right. It's like the same, from, from my understanding of it, he didn't have the requisite qualifications to deal with flying in those particular conditions. Right. Um, and it's exactly what Adam said. It's a kind of, well, you know, I have the private plane. I'm going to use it to get home when I want to, rather than... Uh, it's just such a horrible thing. It's such yeah. a, it's so stark. The idea that, um, from the things that Adam said, the idea that you can sort of, you can see this list of caveats ahead of you and you can understand all the peril and you can understand also sort of, well, why there is a reason to pay heed to those. Like mm -hmm. you've got a human being and a life and a, it's just, it's, it's the nastiest thing. It's, um, okay, not just the play, also you know, the pilot to, the pilot to, yeah. So I, I suppose, yeah. I, I suppose the kind of the, not fallacy, but the kind of mistake we make is to, to, to almost roll him into kind of, mm. because the focus is, is the player because he's the, he's the point of the story, sadly. Um, but it's, it's just a, I remember in the days afterwards, um, in the days when he was missing, 
um, Cardiff City had a had that photo of him on their Twitter profile. And he just looks like such a. I remember having a conversation with one of my friends about it. It was like such a smiley, happy human being. The details of his transfer are a little bit different. We don't know whether he he really wanted to play for Cardiff. Maybe that's something we should talk about. Um, but it just seemed it's it's a horrible image that you won't ever be able to leave behind because you've got this smiley face of a man just about to start a new part of his life, um, a, financi- a financially better part of his life, presumably. And it also something gets, he's been working towards for a very long time. Maybe not of course, specifically, so, absolutely, but the Premier League as an example. And absolutely, um, a rare opportunity and just snatched away by kind of, um, I don't want to move into any kind of legal territory, but from what I understand and from what I've read, some pretty pretty callous decision-making, I think. Okay. Well, can yeah. we expect, when, when can we expect... Um, more uh, an update or when the, the appeal has been made obviously do we know yeah, when that, that I mean, court date t- has been time set time scales don't appear to be clear okay um, at the moment I, mean, I think that's one of the frustrations for both clubs as well you know that it's horrific PR for both you know that's I know that's the least of everyone's priorities but it sure. is horrific as it rumbles on as it rumbles on and yeah. on and on and it also casts you know, just a bit of a cloud over over the club, over Neil Warnock, because there's been suggestions, you know, about his relationship with um, um, with the intermediaries. So I think Cardiff wants it resolved as quickly as possible, but the, but it was resolved this week and they didn't like the, the yeah. way it was resolved. So, you know, they can say they don't, you know, they want it resolved as quickly as possible, but actually if they were really keen to resolve it as quickly as possible, they would do what FIFA have suggested. Yeah. So these clubs will, will make it go on as long as it is in their interest to do so. Yeah. Um, Adam, one of the other pieces you wrote recently was um, about the deteriorating relationship between Romelu Lukaku and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer over the summer. And it's a really strange situation which developed between a player who a year before, two years before, had, you know, his, his heart was very much on, on moving to Manchester United and that's the stage he deserved. And then obviously like, over the course of the summer, spent six weeks demonstrating just how determined he was not to play for Manchester United. Do you want to talk us through that that piece and the breakdown between breakdown yeah. of their relationship? Yeah, I mean, I think this this is probably a case of it really working both ways. You know, Manchester United really didn't want Romelu Lukaku <laughs> to stay at the club either. Um, you know, so was that from the club or was that from Solskjaer? Solskjaer. Okay. Um, and presumably that's because he doesn't want. I mean, he doesn't fit his style and doesn't want him uh, blocking the pathway of Rashford and Martial. Yeah, and uh, Mason Greenwood, Greenwood as well. well. Yeah. Um, I think it all goes back, to, the breakdown goes back to what I, I actually think epitomises almost everything that's gone wrong at Manchester United over the past six years, um, which may need several podcasts um, <laughs> to get through. But with when Solskjaer came in, he, he was recruited and he were, you know, the initial reaction towards him was was sort of underlined by this idea that he was the opposite to his predecessor. And every, so he was the opposite of Mourinho, you know, Mourinho's scowl, Solskjaer with the smile. And it just sort of summed up that everything United have d- done since Ferguson retired has been a reaction. From the moment they sacked David Moyes, it's been a reaction. Um, and so Solskjaer's reaction with Lukaku was, well, Mourinho really liked Lukaku. He had him as like his big bulking number nine. And Solskjaer thought, oh, well, Rashford's been on the wing. Everyone's always been saying, you know, Rashford can be the, the main man. He can be the striker. That's what I'm going to do. And that's what he did. And for, for eight weeks or so, it absolutely worked. Rashford was fantastic. You weren't looking and thinking, God, aren't United missing Lukaku here? But actually, when he came off the bench, I remember him scoring a couple of goals. And, mm. you know, people were saying, oh, this is, this is working. And then, to be fair, I think there was a couple of injuries. Lukaku came in and he scored couple of goals against Southampton, a couple against Crystal Palace. He then, you know, he arguably scored the goals that got... The PSG game, I remember got, as yeah, well. Yeah, that right? got Solskjaer on the job, you know, in Paris. Okay, Rashford scores the penalty, but Lukaku scores two in the first half. But I think after that, I think he, I don't know if he scored again after the PSG game. If he did, it was one or two maximum. And, and it slowly deteriorated. As United's form deteriorated... I know Solskjaer told someone at the LMA dinner in uh, May that Lukaku wouldn't be part of his plans. So he had it very clear that he was happy for Lukaku to go. And the club said to Lukaku and to Lukaku's agent, if you can find a buyer, find the right price, we'll we'll make this happen. So actually it seemed like everyone was pretty much in the same boat. Mm. 
what happened was I think it then even got to July and before pre-season Lukaku actually came in four or five days early started getting into the you know got into the gym you know he said Solskjaer said will you come on the pre-season tour because nothing's happened yet he did do what happened on the pre-season tour was Lukaku had a small ankle injury now it was one of those ankle injuries that if you were midway through a season and you've got important games you take an injection and you'd play however if your club is negotiating a transfer for you both from your point of view in terms of I want to pass a medical and also from the, club, the selling club's point of view we don't want to jeopardise this it made sense that he stayed out of certain parts of training sessions and also stayed out of, of games I think that was probably so I think that was probably misinterpreted at the time as oh Lukaku's making out he's not really got an injury um, it then gets to you know closest to the season starting still no deal his agent has brought into Milan to the table I think they turned down two bids and the second one was something like 67 million and I remember talking to someone at United that night I th- someone who supports Manchester United I'm thinking 67 million for Lukaku okay it's not maybe what you paid for him but I can see why at that point Lukaku might be thinking well you don't want me mm. but you want more than 67 million okay mm. so I think that's where the panic started to set in and then they had the day off where he turns up at Anderlecht it was a day off so he can um, but you probably shouldn't turn up in a different club's kit and train with a, with, with a different club however it wasn't in like a different it, country in a different <laughs> country but I suppose you know I think we forget some, sometimes how much these players move around on three, on three days you know Brussels it's a train ride it's two train train rides away it's not the work you know it's his former club it's not as if he's turned pitched up at Liverpool um, and starts training with them (laughs) the issue is then they had the next day where it wasn't a day off and he was still there Um, and the other issue that arose was when he posted some running stats on Twitter um, which embarrassed uh, his teammates Juan Mata and Luke Shaw because it showed that they weren't very quick, which I'm sure surprised absolutely everybody um, <laughs> on Twitter that Juan Mata and Luke Shaw weren't very quick. But those two players weren't particularly happy that Lukaku would post them. Fair enough. Yeah, Lukaku argues that he had to, he well, had to, he chose to post those because he takes a lot of abuse on Twitter over his shape and his fitness. Has he never heard of redacting? Though? Yeah, well... Yeah. Do they not teach like that? He doesn't even need to be that complicated. Just get a permanent marker. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know. So they then had, uh, I think there was a conversation on the Sunday between Solskjaer and Lukaku, which went very, very badly. And I think all communication after that took place between Lukaku's agent and United's executives. Is Lukaku's agent still Mino Raiola? No, it's, um, he left him, which is also part of the reason that Pogba and Lukaku's relationship deteriorated quite rapidly last season as well oh well, and because um, of loyalties or because because of issues that arose between Raiola and Lukaku's relationship and also Pogba and Lukaku there, there was a big thing made when Lukaku signed for United about how Pogba had persuaded him and yeah. that they were together in Los Angeles they had, their they had a little video, video when, yeah. when, uh, when the deal was made final yes. I think yeah but they weren't ever really as close as that suggested if right. that makes sense you know I think it's that thing of oh footballers socialise with the other one they must be best friends mm. um, that we that we're sometimes guilty of doing um, in the media so, but that just gently gently deteriorated it's quite a bad stage last season um, to the point that, well most teammates expected both players to go um, but certainly there was a view that they shouldn't both stay um, at the club so that it was also another example of Pogba being chosen ahead of a very senior person at the club, right. given the same had happened with Jose Mourinho last year. Um, so, so that's where, as the agent to answer your question, is Federico Pastorello, um, right. who's an Italian agent. Um, okay. Who's, I think he also does a bit of work with Conte um, as well. Mm. I mean, it does, I, it makes the whole situation make sense, but I think it is also massively impacted by, as you said at the beginning, how Manchester United have consistently got things wrong over the last yeah. six years. Even the point about reacting you know if you think David Moyes and Jose Mourinho fairly maybe this is too reductive but fairly pragmatic coaches reactive coaches themselves uh, with Louis van Gaal and Solskjaer who we don't know that much about yet Mm -hmm. I suppose in between 
almost doing a, a total 180 each time you hire a new okay. manager, and it is still a manager, there's no footballing director yet, and choosing, as you say, Pogba over other senior members at the club when Pogba probably isn't going to be there much longer yeah. anyway. I mean, exactly. it doesn't seem, it just doesn't make any sense, does it? Lukaku himself seems to be a reaction, though. I mean, his original move to Manchester United, because is that the transfer, and I include the amount paid, um, is that the transfer of a club who are thinking clearly about who are thinking clearly in, in not just year to year cycles, but in a five year period. You're thinking you're talking about a player that has a, a very fine goal scoring record at Everton. He scored plenty of goals at West Brom too. But you're also someone who consistently missed chances, who dealt with a lot of scrutiny, um, seemed to suffer from a personal perspective um, from that scrutiny, from um, the crowd at Goodson Park. So you're saying, right, this is the person we want to put at Old Trafford where the air is that much thinner, the criticism is that much fiercer. And you've got a player that sort of, he seems like a sensitive fellow, Romelu Lukaku. I don't know if that's accurate. I've not spoken to him. Never even mixed own Romelu Lukaku. If, but, I mean, if you put uh, your running stats on Twitter to defend yourself, I, I feel like, not, I feel like not that's the criticism, but that's, a set, that's the act of a sensitive person. I, I feel like it's someone that's it's in need of a bit of validation. Yes, yeah, me too, me too. Yeah. If someone accuses me of being fat, then I'm I'm going to take a picture of the scales and put it on my Instagram. <laughs> You know, it's, it's like, because well, right, right, I could definitely yeah. afford to lose a stone or two. Um, but it, it, it's always seemed like, I remember, I don't know if you guys remember this. I remember um, Lukaku playing against Everton for the first time at Old Trafford. And I think it was about 3-1, something like that. And Lukaku got a late goal. And the reaction in that moment for most players would have been to celebrate with his new teammates. And I remember him wheeling off towards that away corner at Old Trafford and, you know, putting his hands to his ears. And you're thinking, that's weird. Because the dynamic of the transfer, usually if a if a player moves from an Everton-sized club to a Manchester United-sized club, there has to be a little bit of a conciliatory something in that moment. Um, I think that... It was descriptive. I don't know why I'm undescriptive of what, but it was sort of, it was, it was, I just remember it was, it was odd. I remember thinking that. I think if you go back to, I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure Lukaku did a, one of those Players' Tribune yes, he did. Uh, pieces yes. last year where he talked actually very emotively about his upbringing, about how difficult it was, how just very little money um, his parents had growing up. I remember when he joined United, I went to do a piece in sort of around where he grew up. And the, I remember one of his best friends saying how, you know, they, the family would like lend, you know, money to, uh, to Lukaku's family at the time. We're not talking a lot of money. We're talking 10, 20 pounds, keep them going each time. And I remember the headmaster of a school saying how he let, gave him a bike so that he could, he kept, because he kept being uh, late in school. And I spoke to someone who knows Lukaku pretty well in July and he, he, he basically made the argument that when, when you take people from, particularly from, from an immigrant community in a country like Belgium, France, what, when, when you have their trust, they will be with you. Absolutely, absolutely, they'll be with you. But if you breach that trust, it's very hard to regain it. And the hurt almost doubles. Um, now, obviously, every individual is, di is different in how they would deal with that. But that was how he read Lukaku. It was very much, you know, you always have to be clear and straight with him um, for him to, to maintain a trust and respect for you. And the, mm. the point at which you stop showing that same respect to him, you will lose him. Completely. Yeah, I, I often think with footballers generally anyway, and I suppose this applies particularly to footballers who come from an impoverished background, mm. to have made it to the Premier League, Absolutely. you yeah. obviously have to have natural and genetic uh, talents mm. anyway. But the focus and the, the sort of, I guess the mental challenge of reaching that stage is such that your character has to be extraordinary yeah. and you have to want something desperately and working so much harder than everyone else that yeah. you know to reach there if you throw in you know in a way that kind of magnifies any sort of childhood psychological issues that may arise i don't mean that in an extreme no. way all all of us have these things from our childhood sure. but if you throw that into into this kind of um this recipe uh, it just magnifies all of those problems when you get to to become an adult. And for a Premier League footballer who has had to earn everything that they have and comes from a background like that, the idea of running over to a crowd and it being about yourself and what you've earned and recognition for your own achievements, I kind of understand. I, that. I understand it, Joe. I mean, contextually, it's I still find it strange because these stories, unfortunately, about that's because um, you're privileged. It is because I'm privileged. But I mean, <laughs> if you look at the context of 
not just football, but professional sport. Yeah. These are the um, people coming, people rising from deprived communities um, and terrible hardship and great suffering and sacrifice. Mm. These are not unique stories. No. I'd actually argue with an English football compared to something like, for instance, the NFL, mm -hmm. the life trajectory there, that it's far more dramatic. And yet, whilst I completely understand why these things would manifest in the way they do, and I understand the arguments here, like it still stands out in isolation because it's a it's an odd reaction in context. It's not a, it needn't be accusatory. It was just from a, I remember saying and thinking. It's an observation. That is, yeah, as an observation, that's curious. That's piqued my interest. Mm -hmm. I wonder why, because I, I'm not an Everton fan. I didn't pay that much attention to the dynamics of the relationship he had with the Everton supporters. I knew that he was a polarizing figure. I understand that. Everton supporting friends. But it was still a kind of, it didn't fit the picture is all I'm saying. That's mm. all. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. I would have thought, though, in Europe, that football and maybe fighting are the sports that are most accessible to all fighting. people. Yeah, because you don't need stuff. You know, the whole point with football is all you need is you a mean football. mean like mixed martial arts, not just having just a rock Just fighting. On it. Like, yeah, that's what they call the sport, isn't it? Isn't that, I don't know. Is that what the sport's called? Fighting, the fighting sport? It's just literally called fighting and block capitals and an exclamation mark. Yeah. That's the sport. Yeah. 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 Fighting. Well, the point I'm making is that those things are, are most, potentially most accessible. I suppose, you know, boxing, maybe, I don't know if you need the gym. I don't know what I'm saying, but football, you know, it's the thing. You just need the ball, your jumpers, goalposts, that sort of thing. You don't need, you know, I know, that, again, sailing, there's no, there's none of those stories in sailing. Maybe some in cricket, but you've got to have all that all stuff that you put on your legs and, you know, the chalk for your face, that sort of stuff. Chalk's expensive. And uh, other sports too. You take the point anyway. This is an advert. This podcast is supported by The Athletic, the best place to read about football online. Go to theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO, get a 30-day free trial and 50% off an annual subscription. The piece we are about to talk about, uh, a big sort of expose on what goes on behind the scenes of the transfer window, uh, all sorts of hilarious anecdotes, etc., uh, is available on The Athletic, written by Adam Crofton, today's podcast guest. I would uh, highly encourage you to go and at least download the 30-day free trial and have a read of this um, and then stick around, you know. Uh, but uh, that is www.theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO 30-day free trial and 50% off an annual subscription. Uh, thank you very much. And back to the episode. Transfers. You did a whole thing on transfers and it was great, oh, by the way. This, this is a great piece. It really yeah, was yeah. good. Um, for those of you who are already Athletic subscribers... If you haven't read it, go back and read it. Yeah. What is the full title of it? It's near the beginning. Transfers, big stories of the transfer. It's, it's Adam's latest, I think, isn't it? Yeah, but it's it's still really prominent on your author page and right. the, uh, yeah, go on Adam's probably, author page. It's yeah. so worth reading. Yeah, There's so many it, like which we can't we, we won't retell them all anyway because that would ah. you know would spoil spoil your fun of reading it. But there are so many. Uh, fabulous anecdotes, I would call them, as it relates to uh, transfer <laughs> activity um, in football. Uh, for those of you who uh, don't, aren't athletic subscribers, go go back and listen to the code and, you know, do the thing. Um, I don't really know where to start with it. I mean, I so I read, I, I reread it this morning, and the thing that makes me laugh the most about it is, uh, in the, it's probably in the first half of the article, you talk about how... Uh, Execs or like the the group of senior employees mm. at a football club will have a WhatsApp group mm. uh, in which they discuss transfer related matters and then various subgroups beyond that. Uh, and I just love the idea that they are they're using the blue tick system. You they, you describe mm. it as saying that the most important thing for them is that they can see that the agent and or the player or the other club that they're speaking to has seen the message so that they can't pretend to ignore it. I just love the idea that these these people in positions of seniority with you know making multi-million pound deals yeah. and uh, trading players who are you know the, the the fantasy of our mind's eye are just doing the same thing we are on little whatsapp groups yeah i mean how else would you do it now i mean that's I the, know. you know yeah. pe people don't talk to each other god mm. um certainly, god don't forbid. Talk, yeah. certainly don't talk on the phone i, I think one of the things which i mentioned the piece one of the anxieties that all these people have is that they could get stitched up be ridiculed but and be ridiculed press. yeah so 
you know, and I sort of get it, you know. I'm, trying, I'm thinking of WhatsApp groups that I have with friends when you screen, you know, everyone's screenshotting things right. every day now, aren't they? Well, maybe it's just me, but, um, you know, say, you know, I would say I was pretending to be an agent mm. and I email, uh, sorry, email, I WhatsApp Ed Woodward saying, you know, I've got, um, I've got Sergio Ramos for you and he'll do a deal at a hundred grand a week. Do you, oh, know, do you fancy? Do you remember the, the William Carvalho episode with West Ham where, um, where David Sullivan's email to the, um, the, the president of the sporting club, the Portugal, um, the sporting club, the Lisbon, sorry, um, leaked. And it was just like, we'll give you 20 million plus, and it was just, it, it was, it was weird to see it in black and white. It was this kind of like five million for we make the Champions League. And of course everyone laughed at that because it was West Ham because yeah. it's West mm-hmm. Ham. And it's just like, that's, that's what resonated with me from Alan's piece. You thought that's exactly what happened. Mm. If you sent the wrong WhatsApp message to, to someone, even if it was like a, an askew valuation of a player, yeah. you'd just be, you'd be mocked mercilessly forever. Yeah. It'd be brutal. Will you retell me some of your favourite stories from the pit? I don't know, yeah, put you on I'm the spot. I mean, yeah, it was, um, it was a while ago that you wrote them. We, also, we do have it. I we, can't we, mind we using like my the, phone to film me, but if you want to get the story on your phone... No, as well, no, I can remember the ones that I like. I, um, Tell me your favourite anecdotes. The, the, uh, the player that wanted as part of his contract unlimited business flights. <laughs> <laughs> just We know that you can't reveal who, who these people are, so but it's, it's just... It's a good point but, to but, pick but, up, though. Because th- this is incredibly on. common, though, because and this was this started to come in when you had... I suppose the first South American and African yeah. players, and it's actually less so for um, it's, it's it's less so for the players. It's more for their families. If you bear in mind that you probably you know if you're an African player and you want your family to visit you six times a year, it becomes quite expensive. And yes, they're Premier League footballers, but they also and we're playing the world's smallest violin here. But they leave they lead Premier League lifestyles. So it's like. Well, when people were saying, you know, when Bolton players weren't paid for a while, for example, and people were saying, oh, well, the footballers, they'll be fine. Well, actually, they have a mortgage based on what yeah. they earn. They have outgoings based on what they earn. Um, they have insurance payments on cars, which uh, are probably not normal cars. Yeah, you know? absolutely. So, again, world's smallest smallest <laughs> violin. But th- there is a point there. And and that's sort of how that came about with, with the flights but I, I sort of I found it quite funny but I think Exeter is sponsored by Flybee so you get, some clubs are getting air miles and, mm. and things like that there's, I was wondering when I read that bit if that is in the forethought perhaps of the commercial department of a club depending you know if you can bring in a sponsor who might be able to assist the players yeah, with some freebies or comps or whatever like construction firms that are now giving um, apartments for example which they can then use for players and things like that hotel chains where you may get deals so there's there's all sorts and it, and it makes it i suppose so many co- private companies now you give be- very good uh, benefit schemes whether it's dental insurance or mm. um or medical insurance or opt- opticians all that kind of thing so why would football be any different it's just yeah. so rare that we actually think about that and and it just seems quite odd when you start you know casting your heroes in those sort of very mundane daily I- daily I suppose it's going to become more and more prevalent though, like financial fair play. Like if you have something, a payment in kind situation within a contract, whether it be an apartment, a car, um, some kind of medical insurance, whatever. Like it's a, it must be a very useful little tactic, especially for clubs that aren't, aren't like the, the the very elite Mm. six, for instance, where you do need these little advantages to tempt a player to, to come and play for you for a couple of years. So are we saying that these things would not appear in financial fair play regulation? So for, pre- presumably it is, it is if a club, let's go back to that example of unlimited business class flights for mm. a family from a different continent. Uh, presumably that still comes in on the club's profit and loss sheets, right? But how would you, um, I'm sure it does, of course it would somewhere, yeah. but what would it, what would it be noted in relation to yeah i'm no accountant but at the same time yeah. that's a, that's a kind of obfuscation that clubs are always trying to to find with it in yeah. relation to their financial yeah. i think it was, was, what's the short-term cost control thing is the pre, is the premier league's regulation isn't it presumably We're going you'd in be quite a different to, direction with this podcast well, I'm saying, like, you presumably you'd be able to get around that because i think that relates directly to player wages not exceeding or not growing more than a certain amount yeah. per yeah. year and i also wonder if there's ways you could do it through expenses right yeah, yeah. possibly but i don't know i'm thinking of football clubs now as like newspaper businesses and, <laughs> and things like that so a little insight into uh, adam's own it's, financial it's situation like, <laughs> can i get this brunch through i'm not sure um, <laughs> yeah but i mean it was, it was as i said please do go and read it it was um it was an absolutely fascinating piece and there were a lot of um 
I think I think it just kind of levels the playing field a little bit, and it it made me laugh because it, I like to go into meetings anyway, or meet very important people, or you know, see. I'm sure this would be the take with the Queen, and you get the little <laughs> bit of insight. You you see behind the curtain, and you realise that they don't know what they're doing. They're just exactly the same as you. Uh, everyone's got their own insecurities, and everyone's trying to work out how how things work, particularly in in a new world with mm. um with modern forms of technology as well. One of which I would like to talk about because you mentioned in the article the transfer room, yeah. which mm. is an intriguing idea, isn't it? Will you just tell me a little bit more about what that is? Yeah, so it's it's run by a guy called Jonas Ankerson, um, who I think his brother is involved in running Brentford, um, and they they've basically created this this online app. And I apologise to, to Jonas if I misexplain this, but from what I understand, clubs can put on their what it is they're looking for. So you could say, I don't know if you're, I know Leeds United, for example, use it. If you were Leeds United sporting director, you could say, I want a left back. Um, I want him to be a backup left back. Um, I've got this sort of budget to deal with. You know, get in touch with me if you've got someone. Mm. And there's never really been a tool for doing that before, except for agents yeah. who would go around saying oh this club wants this this club wants this and what it has the benefit of is it actually cuts a lot of yeah. agents out of a lot of the sort of dog work of a deal now a also lot- presumably sending them between clubs one club not knowing if they've relayed mm. the message accurately to the exactly. other club or trying to up the exactly. stakes or, yeah. what I wonder though is whether yeah. I think the biggest transfer that's been done on it was around £15 million I don't, I don't see how it could work for the absolute elite clubs because are oh, the super clubs going to be telling the other super clubs what it is they're looking for? Yeah, you can also use it to list players that you want to sell as well. Absolutely. Presumably, there are there are other ways. That's what I was going to ask. So if I'm if I'm a sporting director, I I log in presumably and I have access to a list of available fullbacks, for instance. <laughs> you know what? You can always tell someone's age when they start by saying, "And I log in first, and that's and it's on the home screen." I, when of my, I heard that, my I mobile phone. God, I sound like my father. I was just, yeah, yeah. Dude, that, you've that, logged in. What are you doing now? So, am I? Am I? Presumably, there's a criteria, a search facility within there. What's available, and and there's a like a full clarity, presumably when I, when I log in, I'm just imagining you now playing solitaire. <laughs> <laughs> a little, little yeah. minesweeper yeah. on the old yeah. Amstrad. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> have you, have you seen it? You know, not, not, I mean, presumably you're only allowed to I've go seen, on if I've, you're a I've only seen sort of us, um, been shown sort of uh, screenshots. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, I think so clubs will say, you know, yes, this player will, this player is available or this, or we have someone available, but, what you don't want to do is make it look like you're flogging someone because then you mm. get a smaller fee. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure these are all things which the app will be tweaking um, to become, you know, as it grows and expands. But I think clubs pay like a subscription fee each month to use it. And which is fairly minimal, isn't it? It's pretty small. Yeah. yeah, I think it's about a grand a month. And they have most of the Premier League clubs now, I think, don't they? It's so- yeah. somewhere like 14 or 15 of them are signed up to it. Yeah, a lot of clubs involved um, across yeah. Europe. Um and it's not the only thing they use, you know, clubs still, you know, sporting director I spoke to for that transfer piece, he mentioned, you know, he was showing me this and then midway through this conversation, Mino Aola calls him mm. and it's like, okay, so you're still very much involved in the Asian market. Yeah. But this is a way of getting, a way of doing things. And I think it's particularly useful for bigger clubs loaning out players um, as mm. well. And for championship and league one or Dutch clubs that, and German clubs that loan players from the big Premier League clubs um, to know, oh, well, Liverpool have got a player in this position um, and we can take him from there and, and mm. we can cut a deal. Um, so I think that's a way of, of getting around it. Mm. It's, it's very interesting. I want to know, Adam, what, what do you think the future of the agent market is? Because um, it feels like with the, with the it's a couple of years old now, but with the uh, removal of the old agent exam and the kind of the deregulation of that market, what are... What is the way of controlling it? Because one of the big issues now in the sort of um, the public discourse is the amount of money which, um, to borrow a term, leaks out of the game. Um, what is the sort of what is the way of regulating agent behaviours, intermediary behaviours within the transfer market now, if there is one? I suppose to bring in the old regulation. Yeah. Again, um, they deregulated it. I still don't understand why they deregulated it. I, I, I don't understand the purpose behind that. I, I still don't. Um, Sorry, Adam, can I get you to shift back? bit more on the direction yeah perfect um no i don't i don't understand why they did that in the first place um 
I would reintroduce it. Um, I don't worry so much about the, you know, that old sort of thing about the money going out of the game. I'm not sure I want the money to go to most people who are in the game. Um, so I don't, I don't worry. I don't worry that much about it. Um, Maybe they could send us some of the money. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, Perhaps that would be nice. Yeah. To be honest. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I think what you will see is definitely an increasing professionalization and that's not because agents want to behave. It's because the competition is becoming more professional. So, you know, I think previously, I think there are still examples where you'll be looking to try and get hold of an agent and there's no website. But increasingly, you know, they have proper websites. They mm. have proper, they clearly detail what it is they're doing. They're now outsourcing into, you know, the PR side, wealth management side. Um, so there's a lot which good agents can do um, to help players. And, and also, you know, th- there are no players now without agents. Mm. So it's not going anywhere. Um but the best way to deal with it is to regulate it, make them do exams and, you know, maybe do almost like doping tests to, you know, be yeah. doing regular spot checks on how transfers have worked and yeah. can you show us all the documentation involved? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, every transfer now involves a lawyer, so there should be no problem providing that trail of paperwork. Yeah. One of my favourite uh, agent tropes is when every now and again a, a, a chancer finds his way within the news cycle somewhere within it mm. and he's um there's a very case with a very famous case with Denver Bar a few years ago it's one with Michael Essien where someone is an intermediary and he presents himself within without really any kind of legal mandate um as being a representative of the player in the traditional sense and the guy appears on like a you know in a, in a paper or in a, a Sky Sports News type environment and the player sees it happen and goes crazy on Twitter. <laughs> I've never met you. I have never met you. I have no idea who you are. And this guy, there's a, there's a guy called um, Karema Farron, I think it's, uh, his name is Armand Dawn or something. He, he, he went on Sky talking about um, about Denver Bar, saying, oh, you know, you know, if, if someone wants Denver, you know, ring me up and say, hey, Armand. You know, like he was, he, he was kind of Ari Gold. And, um, and, uh, and Denver Bar went crazy. He's like, I, I have no idea who you are. Never met you. Um, it's it's funny, but it's it's also quite frightening. Um, I mean, there's a. It's got it, very serious now. All of a sudden, it, it was a yeah, quick, was my a face quick shift, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've shifted in tone quite. Yeah. I've made a quantum leap. Um, there's a um, there's a, a chapter in um, one of Michael Calvin's books where he deals with um, the kind of Walter Mitty types you find in that industry. He calls them shiny gobshies, and I not quite in that um, capacity, but I, I used to work in this industry, and the amount of people that it's like an illusion. They're like holograms. These people, some of them, they, they they kind of they say a lot of different things without actually saying anything at all, and they have this sort of nebulous connection to all kinds of different people it's and organizations. Structure, right? It's like you feel the tentacles, but it's it's um the amount of freedom those people have to to just sort of operate between things in the marketplace mm. is quite frightening. Mm. And I, Adam's quite right. I'm not sure I want money. No, what I would say though is I worry equally about some of the families yeah. that, are getting, that are involved and you know, it seems seems like there's siblings all over the country who reach a point yeah. with a professional player where they're like my brother is now so talented I actually don't need to do anything in my life other than yeah. capitalise on, on what he does and there'll be some very exa- good examples of people who have done really well out of that and been really good for their siblings and things but or there's a yeah. big cohort of siblings or siblings and yeah, but it's friends just, it's, like, yeah. it's like a really crap episode of Entourage Basically, yeah. well, also sometimes right. you worry for the player. I mean, yeah. Yeah, and obviously the, the, those family ties and loyalties and situations are very complex. And as you alluded to before, we all we all have them. Um, but yeah, that you don't want to you want to avoid, I suppose, creating divisions between. You don't want to work with your family members. I suppose that's what I'm. But saying. it's also like you know it, it, it must put a player in a very difficult situation because if you've come from not very much and you've got a couple of close family members who think, yeah, I could be your business manager and I could be your, you know, your watch buyer and your agent and I could... A lot of people haven't got a clue what they're doing. And so that they, you know, the player is caught between um, his loyalty to, his natural loyalty to the family member and also kind of the the, the primacy of his own career and security. Of course, absolutely. Mm. Well, I'm just glad I'm not a footballer. Yeah, and clubs also don't always want to do the best by players. You, the, the, your piece, your piece mentions this. The, one of the, the chairman that you talked to says it's actually quite good working with family members because they don't really know what they're doing. So you're getting it's, exposed at both ends. Yeah. Mm. 
we'll look read it because it's really yeah. good um, <laughs> and we'll link to it in uh, below the podcast as well so if you want to if you want to go directly to it you can find a link there um adam crafton thank you so much for coming in pleasure thank you for having me you are welcome uh, i really enjoyed that seb thanks also for coming on my fourth day having no nicotine in my body i yeah. thought it was the fifth day no it'll be the fifth day as of nine fifteen this evening well congratulations how Cheers, are you feeling? yeah rubbish guess how much nicotine i've got in my body a lot loads <laughs> <laughs> and it's really good and I don't you're know enjoying every is. milligram of it. Um, <laughs> yeah. i love it it's uh gonna that is not athletic endorsed. No. <laughs> it, it is. Other vices are available. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks. And uh, we'll uh, be back next week with... Oh, I know what it is next week. This is the point which you... N- uh, never mind. I can't remember. I'll see you later. Bye. At American University, we don't just hope for change, we create it. We don't just dream of a better world, we make it a reality. With a graduate degree from AU, you'll access expert faculty and connections throughout DC to develop skills and experience to turn your passion into purpose. And that purpose can make all the difference in your career. Discover the difference a degree makes at American.edu slash gradschool.